Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College online journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings from the U.S. Army War College. I'm Jacqueline Whit, Professor of Strategy and the War Room Podcast Editor, and you've joined us today for an episode of A Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. And I think you're in for a real treat with today's program. I'm really pleased to welcome two new voices to the podcast to begin a series of episodes on the craft of writing about history and strategy. The host for today's podcast is Dr. Michael Nyberg, who is the Chair of War Studies here at the Army War College. He is a prolific writer whose books focus primarily on the history of the First World War and include a wide range of topics and are written for a variety of target audiences. He writes just as easily for academic specialists as for undergraduates and for the general public. His guest is Dr. Robert Satino, who is a longtime friend and colleague and a former Harold K. Johnson Chair of Military History at the War College. Rob is also a prolific and well-respected author and currently serves as the senior historian at the National World War II Museum. You're in store for a great conversation that covers a lot of ground, from the writing process to the significance of studying and writing military history in relation to current events, and to their love of books of reading, and even a really interesting discussion about footnotes. So we'll turn now to their conversation. I'm Michael Nyberg, Chair of War Studies here at the U.S. Army War College, and I am delighted to have with me my good friend and one of the most respected historians working in the field, Rob Satino, who is the Senior Historian at the World War II Museum in New Orleans, Louisiana. That would be the Samuel Zamuri Stone Senior Historian. I have to... Thank you very much. All uh, what was what say that full disclosure. Full disclosure, and uh, someone that I've known for a very long time. We've been good friends for a very long time. We That's taught sure. here at the Army War College together. We were in the same seminar together. So Rob and I go way way back. He's babysat my dog. So this is someone that uh, how I, is Max? Max is doing great. Thank okay. you very much for asking. Um, so this is someone that I deeply respect and deeply admire, and and uh, the, I couldn't think of a better person to sit down and talk about writing and talk about the art of writing with than, than Rob Satino. So Thanks, Rob, Thanks. welcome back to Carlisle. Welcome oh, back to one of your homes. Yeah, one of my many homes. It's great to be here. 2013 to 2015, I taught uh, w- alongside you here in the Department of National Security and Strategy. Is that correct? That, that is correct. Yeah, you got it. You and just it. Uh, it, was, it was a good two years. Learned a lot. Had some wonderful students. Made some great friendships, and got to hang out with you. Yeah, it was a great. Years, it was a great so couple of years. Doesn't get any better, Mike. So one of the things about your work that has always impressed me, uh, you work on the German army in the Second World War, which can be uh, a very difficult subject. It can be a, something filled with, with, with minds, to, to, to borrow a very, what's probably a very bad analogy. There's a lot of really bad work on the German army in World War II. There's a lot of stuff about the German army that um, is mythic or, or outright fictional. Uh, how do you, when you're dealing with this quite controversial subject, how do you organize your thoughts? How do you think about what you're going to work on? How do you take a topic as potentially difficult as that one and come up with the great historical work that you do? Well, first of all, thanks for the kind words, Mike, but it's a, it, it's a good question, good series of questions, and I really do like the whole metaphor of writing about the Wehrmacht as a minefield. I'm going to remember <laughs> that one from now on. It is. You know, I, I came up, got my PhD in 1984. At the time, it was the, the big Reagan military buildup. It was the uh, a lot of officers within the U.S. Army were thinking of, you know, sort of post-Vietnam how, war fighting against the Soviet Union, big battalion fighting in the Fulda Gap and, and elsewhere. And, you know, they were looking to historical sources for how to build a new doctrine for, for an, an army that was now teeming with new equipment and new technology. And, 
you know, many, many pretty serious writers were looking back at the Wehrmacht at the time as a kind of model of uh, a reforming institution, one which supposedly invented something called Blitzkrieg. We can put that off to the side for a moment. But at the very least, was amongst the first to do what we might consider modern uh, combined arms operations. And um, there was sort of a Clausewitz revival mm -hmm. in, the, in, the, in the U.S. Army as well. And Naturally, that, those are the things I was reading when I came up as a graduate student. I'd always been interested in military history. There's maybe some psychological reason for that. My, people ask me, I say, well, my father fought in World War II. He was on Guadalcanal. But, you know, where I grew up, west side of Cleveland, Ohio, born in 1958, everybody's father fought in World yeah. War II. So uh, I, I had learned, uh, you know, did some foreign language work at Ohio State. as an uh, That would be the Ohio State University, uh, TM. Um, as, a, as an undergraduate, learned German, got pretty good at it, and, and so I wedded a natural interest in World War II to, uh, uh, in, uh, to a knowledge of the language. And th that enabled me to read a lot of things that more, most American scholars simply weren't reading. And I soon came to a kind of realization in the 80s that the, the, the Germans were you know, neither hopeless at war nor were they perfect at war, that, that they had a, evolved a doctrine and a, a vision for fighting wars that, that really went back many hundreds of years into the Prussian past. And so I, I don't, you know, I, what the, the war the Wehrmacht fought was, was uh, immoral and, and, and cr criminal. Whether it was immoral, I'll leave that to theologians, bigger story, but it was certainly criminal, and, and many of their commanders were, were put in the dock for it. And no one can say anything good about about the Wehrmacht's treatment of civilians or the atrocities that they carried out or the, the, the role it played in the Holocaust. But at the same time, I, 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 you also can't deny that the Wehrmacht did pioneer a kind of new vision of modern mechanized military operations in the opening years of World War II that still basically defined the field. I mean, when the U.S. Army today thinks of big, but I call big battalion operations, I think everyone out there knows what I mean, a big conventional warfare based on combined arms, they're essentially, you know, looking back to some of the sources that, uh, of the Wehrmacht in 1938, 39, 40, 41. So the first couple of years for the war and the first perhaps couple of uh, the next years of the war. So I'm not, uh, you know, I don't hold, I don't think Heinz Guderian was the greatest general of all time. I, I don't think Erwin Rommel was the greatest field marshal of all time. He's probably at best a division or corps commander who kept getting promoted until he was incompetent at something, which was an army group commander. Um, but I do think the, the military achievement of the Wehrmacht in those early years of the war is still worth looking at. So I think I'm able to write this with an almost complete – I've learned to write it with a complete absence of romanticism. At least that's what I'm striving for. So were you aware in the 80s and early 90s that you were – were you aware of the time period you were living in as well? I mean all historians, I think we all understand this. You're, you're writing about an historical time period, but you're also writing about the time period you're living through. There's were, no were, doubt. Were, were, so you were conscious of this air-land battle, what the Army was thinking about, that there was something in this – that, that could have present-day relevance. In, there's no doubt about it. I, I published a book in 2004, I guess, called Blitzkrieg to mm -hmm. Desert Storm, which essentially, while it has Blitzkrieg in the title, um, it was about the U.S. Army from, the, from 1940 to, to Operation Desert Storm and beyond. And so what I was, you know, I was reading the Military Review at the time, coming yeah. out of Leavenworth. Man, you practically needed a German-English dictionary to read Military Review. Kesselschlag, Schwerpunkt, Auftragstaktik, uh, talk about Clausewitz and, polit and the importance of politik to, to, to waging war. I don't think there was any doubt. I, I was never, I don't see myself as an antiquarian. I, I see myself as a guy who lives in the present. I, yeah. I try, I mean, I, I try to watch television because I think it's important to know where America is culturally. I, I try to listen to the most contemporary music I can find. You know, your my daughters made me do that. My students for 30 years made me do that. So I see myself as a guy who lives in the present, not an antiquarian. 
And I, I think that's really informed the way I write. I think it's informed the way I look at some of these questions. Uh, but, you know, I'll come back to one more time. A big reason I think my books, if they succeed, I think one of the reasons they succeed is that I try to ground them as much as possible in the German sources. Yeah, so I did want to come to talk to the sources, but I wanted to come back. Not, not everybody in our profession sees the present as anything relevant to study at all. That is, there are plenty of historians who believe my job is to study this period of this 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 place in this time period. It's not my job to connect it to the present at all. And it, you know, it occurs to me we have this challenge at the Army War College. We we really don't want to hire those folks. We want to hire folks that are thinking the way that you are thinking. That that sure. whatever you're writing about does connect to the present. So, you know, not only is it another reason why you are such a great professor here, but it seems to me it's also a way. Uh, of thinking about what Michael Howard said, that you know, no, no, no human activity other than war is as similar through time. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say it as, as pithily as he said it, but yeah. that war remains relatively constant through time. We here we so, talked about you know the character of war, which changes yeah. all the time, the nature of the war, which nature of war, which is kind of constant and, and unchanging. I really like that dichotomy. Um, I like teaching. I liked teaching here the two years I was here, and primarily I liked teaching here because I felt well we could. There was almost no point to anything we were talking about unless it had some relevance to the present day. I, I, I would take issue with any historian. Uh, I understand how we get trained in graduate school, which is to be kind of narrow and learn our craft at a fairly narrow topic. And, and yes, and really kind of delve so deeply into it, it almost becomes an obsession. But I would take issue with some, someone who's been out for a while and, and has had a few yeah. books published and articles published and does the lecture circuit that you and I do. Who, who thinks uh, that historians should not have any relevance to the present or that what historians do doesn't have any relevance to the present? I'd really take issue with that. I'm not sure why we do it then. Yeah, I think the way you put it is perfect. Someone who's been out for a while, right? Yeah. When you're just trying to prove your chops, you're trying to make sure you understand how to do this, how to read evidence, how to construct an argument, how to place it within an historiography. That's one thing. But well, think about, you know, I play guitar, so, so you learn scales. Yeah. If you want to you want to play an instrument, it doesn't matter what it is. Play all the scales in every position and every key every day. You know, which is also a way of committing suicide slowly. It's very <laughs> difficult. People pick up the guitar, they go, I don't know. When I was a kid, you want to play smoke on the water. Um, but you <laughs> which have which I've seen the, you do, which, which is, is something <laughs> But you have to get those fundamentals down. I understand this. I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not arguing or advocating for a complete redo of the way we train historians, but I would, you know, I'd urge all my fellow historians, you're, you're, you're men and women, smart people. You, 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 you read 100,000 times more than the typical American or typical global citizen. You, you, have, a, you have perspectives of all sorts that, that most people just don't, you know, are, are unable really to generate themselves. And so I'd urge all scholars in whatever field, whatever field of the humanities at least, to, to always be thinking of the present. I just, again, yeah. I come back to it. I'm just not sure why, why we'd be doing this if it really was a – a museum piece, and as a museum employee, let me qualify what I mean by that, if it's something that's in a display case and is unchanging and doesn't really speak to the present day. I'm not even sure why a museum would do that. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. So what's your writing process like? I know there are some writers um, who... who... <laughs> yeah, this is going to be good. I can't wait to describe <laughs> this. Well, let, let's start with some basics. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to write um, very concise bits of argument and then flesh things out as I go. Other people I know write a ton and then cut out the stuff kind of like michelangelo when he said he made david right he took a block of marble and yeah. then cut away everything that wasn't david right, right. Um, would you describe yourself as either of those or as something completely different you know dizzy gillespie also said it took him a whole year of playing a whole lifetime of playing to learn what notes to leave what out. notes to leave so out yeah notes, what notes not to play right so less is more you know there's arguments some people think more is more i i um 
I like to write in fully formed paragraphs. I really like to get flow. Yeah, I'll jot down some ideas, but I never have really written down anything that I would consider approaches a what a chapter outline in the classic sense that I know. Oh, really? Oh, I, I do that all the time. So I have an idea where I want this chapter yeah. to go, and it's in, it's in my mind. Uh, yeah. And and then I, I really do try to write an intro to the chapter that that excites me, mm-hmm. that ends on some note of drama or or anticipation or curiosity that makes people want to delve into the chapter. Now, admittedly, I just published my 10th book, Mike. So I I, I consider myself an authority on my subject. I don't, I think, if, if I want to talk about the Wehrmacht and the Battle of Kursk, I have a pretty, a pretty big body of information, pretty big body of data already in my mind. I'm trying to think of, of some way to present the Battle of Kursk, some way in which I look at the Battle of Kursk that is different than anybody else has. The, only other, the other only justification for writing a book, right, is that you right. have to have something to say. But for years now, I've really spent a lot of time on the craft of my writing, on things like rhythm, flow, word choice. We're writing about things that happened, so active verbs are very, very good. Avoiding mm. the passive voice so it doesn't sound like you're writing a legal brief. No offense to my, all the wonderful lawyers I know. <laughs> But no reason to, for, for delving into the passive voice any more than you have to. So I really do try to go for the flow. If, if I may, let me give you an example. Sure. In my last few books, I've started most of the chapters of my books with a little historical vignette. In other words, it's, it's not a classic chapter opening, but it does, I think, present the problem that I want to discuss in the chapter. In one of the chapters in the Wehrmacht's Last Stand, I have, uh, I have Yodel. German operations chief, and he's, he's counting up where his division, you know, he's got 350 divisions in the field, and you think, well, that'd be enough to take care of almost anything. Of course, 250 of them are in the Soviet Union, and 30 of them are in Italy, and he's got 15 in the Balkans, and by the time he's thinking how to repel the, the, the great invasion in the West that he knows is coming, he's got, you know, he's got 50 divisions, more or less, and half of them are static divisions without any transport, and they're filled with foreign troops, so-called uh, Eastern battalions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's got a real problem on his hands. And that's how I start the chapter on Germany defending against D-Day. I really, I, I really just try to put the reader, I, you know, we say in media rest, right? You're in the middle of things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, not all my reviewers have enjoyed those vignettes. Uh, one reviewer said it's, it's got no place in a history book, which seems to me to be overstepping your uh, bounds as a, hist- or as, a, as a history reviewer to set yourself up as the arbiter of what's acceptable and what's not, but got no uh, no place for that. I often write these in the historical present. So w- was this a function, do you think, there is a weird conceit in our profession that if you're writing to a larger audience, that means you're not really saying anything, right? That, that's another academic conceit, that you should be writing to an audience of specialists. Yeah. W- was this a function of that? Because I know you and I have both faced that. Yes, we have both faced it. I, I do think, you know, when I read the reviewers, the reviews, and I'm largely talking about the reviews in the scholarly journals, this is the place you might read something like that. And I was mentioning, so I write them in the historical present. Yodel grimaces as he looks at the list, right? It's in the present. Um, I've been taken to task for that. You know, that that's got no place in historical writing. Julius Caesar's Civil War. He wrote most of his book, The Civil Wars, in the historical present. Yeah, he would have gotten dinged by reviewer number two. We, we <laughs> no both know that. We both know that. You know, uh, Caesar, realizing his left is threatened, leaps into action and deploys the Ninth Legion. Whatever, but he, and he, of course he's writing about himself in the third person as well. So um, I guess write in a way that's interesting to you. Write in a way that you think will be interesting to your readers. I thankfully work for a company now, the National World War II Museum, an institution that is dedicated to reaching the largest possible audience it can. So maybe, I mean, and so am I. And so maybe they've got the right man, and I've got mm-hmm. the right place to work. Um, 
we get about 750,000 visitors. I think that was the number for this last year. Maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's the last. Let's say 700,000 plus. That's a lot of people. They're, they're not scholars by and large. Some of them are, I suppose. But, but if you look at the modal visitor we get. They're not scholars. They love World War II. They're fascinated with it. They'll talk your head off about it all day. So it's, it's not adulterating your art to try to reach as many yeah. of those people as possible. And again, that's something else I'd urge all, all, I'd urge all our colleagues in the history business or in the humanities generally. Yes, we have evolved our own special lingo. We have our own professional language. And we need to do that. I, I understand. Like, things like the art. What is your argument? We say it. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I can see it in your yeah, eyes. Yeah. But most people, what is your argument? What, what's the problem? Why do, you ha- yeah. why do you have an argument? You know, we say arguably now, as in uh, Hitler was arguably at fault for the Second World War, or, which means he probably was. And that's a very different way than most people use it. Arguably means probably not. Yeah, it took so, me about a year of graduate school to figure that out. When uh, we yeah, were talking I mean, about argument and we were talking about developing of an argument, that it was a positive thing to develop an argument. Yes. I bet it took me a good eight months to figure out what that meant. Like you, I probably went to, even to graduate school still thinking a, a historian reported on the past. Right. Just, you know, it's kind of right. like a chronicler. Right. Um, what is your argument? What is your thesis? So we, we use those words, and I know we always will, and we should use them. But at the same time, we're using that historical uh, uh, professional language amongst ourselves. I don't think we should necessarily douse our readers in it at every Mm. turn. Once again, if you are a brand new PhD working your dissertation into your first monograph and it's going to be important to your career, disregard everything I'm saying. Right, exactly. Yeah, you got to show your chops first. Remember who you're writing that. First, you're writing your dissertation for five people or however many people on your committee. And then you're writing that first book for however many readers your chosen press is going to send it to. You know, try to hit the bigger audience later. I, it, you know, certainly didn't come overnight. I don't write in Rick Atkinson territory either in terms of hundreds of thousands of book sales and maybe more than that for his trilogy. But I've I've grown a little bit of a more of a popular audience perhaps than most historians. But it is true. I mean, we don't we don't get a lot of that as training as historians how to write, especially not how to write for a popular audience. If you get training in how to write, it's how to write that narrow jargonistic, argumentative prose. Like you said, you know, arguing for a, a very small group. It's it's difficult, I think, to write the way that you write to reach a popular appeal, but yet still have the argument. The, the language is not maybe as technical as it would be for some other, pro, you know, smaller projects. But the argument is still there. The ideas are still there. But the the prose is readable. It's followable. It's it's decisive. It's it flows. All those things that you mentioned. Yeah. It's well, a difficult I'm, thing to do. It's good. To, it's certainly good to hear that. I I'll stack my footnotes up against anybody's. You know, I mean, yeah. in terms of, I, I'm still, I've written 10, published 10 books, and they are scholarly books. My most recent last fall, the uh, the Wehrmacht's Last Stand. Even I was at some point saying, I think I'm getting carried away with these footnotes. But, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to present in the footnotes that scholarly apparatus, as someone who wants to reproduce mm-hmm. my research or someone who wants to investigate some of these areas, if you want to know, um, you know, the, the German language literature on the Ardennes Offensive, what we call the Battle of the Bulge, you know, I recommend my footnotes to you. So I am writing scholarly yeah. books. That's been my bread and butter, and I, I presume it's going to be my bread and butter, um, uh, you know, for the for the rest of my career. So the, that that ties back to the issue of languages, because I I face the same thing working in French sources. I want I want those footnotes. I almost think of the footnotes as another chapter. I want them. You could almost read them as a standalone thing, in part because I want to show what you want to show. I've done the work. I've been in those archives. I read those languages. You know, I've, I've done this. Yeah. So I, I think of the, the footnotes almost as another body of work. I mean, sometimes it's just a citation to find something. Right. But I, I use it as a kind of, okay, here's something else I want to talk about. Or Something else I've 
been doing a lot in my footnotes. Hey, we're we're down in it now, aren't we? We're talking about footnotes. Yeah, we are. <laughs> yeah, we are. I'm, Sorry, dear listener. No, really, I'm hearing the sound of people switching <laughs> off the podcast. Um, you know, one thing I try to do in footnotes, there's a lot of quotes. The German military history has generated a lot of magic quotes, whether it's Clausewitz, the continuation of politics by other means, or whether it's Moltke saying no plan survives contact with the enemy's main body, Schlieffen keep the right wing strong. You know, it's a whole, it's a whole list of them. I I, sort, I try to source them because they're never right. sourced. And sourcing right. those things can be a nightmare. Um, the ones I just mentioned now, perhaps not as bad as some, but there's just so many. There's thousands of them in the course of my writing. And that's boy, after I've written the manuscript and I've used that quote. And then the agony begins of sorting through my entire German language book collection to try to find what I consider to be the locus classicus, the sort of classical source for that. Because then somebody says that somebody else says that somebody else quote quotes that book and it's quoting an English language book, which happened to use that phrase. But so th- I, I think that's particularly important too. That, so I, that's one thing my footnotes do. They also outline the arguments mm-hmm. to use that term again, the arguments that have been generated by some of these great battles or some of the great campaigns that I'm writing about. I, I'm, I'm old school in many ways, Mike, um, in that I do write, a, you know, I don't think it's drum. I don't hear any drums and trumpets in my work, but I definitely write on battle and campaign. I, I find it fascinating, and I think I've had some insights that my readers have found interesting. So you and I both learned that about sourcing quotations and, and taking back. I think we both learned that from our godfather, Dennis Showalter, who oh, no Dennis taught me to do that. Don't Just because everybody says that so-and-so said this, make sure that that actually happened, no matter how how common it is. So how do Mike, you— Mike, you know, i got to say this, though. You did a Feshrift. You edited a Feshrift for Dennis. Maybe Showalter. we better explain what that is. That, uh, that's a that's an edited book in honor of someone that So that someone we who did. is very dear to you or important to your career, you get your friends together, you all write a chapter, and then Mike here, this is for Dennis Showalter, Mike and my dear friend, Mike wrote the, uh, the intro to it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, you asked me if I wanted to do that, and I said, you bet I wanted to do it. I, I couldn't be happy. Actually, Dennis, what you said is, Mike, I'll do anything for my godfather, Mike, which I'll I do, thought was the greatest email I ever received. I'll do anything for my godfather, yeah. you know that. <laughs> but uh, Dennis, uh, Dennis is a figure— if, if I could speak of Dennis Showalter for a moment, great German military historian, Dennis is a figure of towering, absolutely towering intellect. I, I don't know quite any, anyone quite like him. Maybe there's a ha- small handful. Mm-hmm. But he is also one of the funniest and liveliest writers you'll ever bump into. And so that I guess when I was coming up, who did I want to be when I grew up? Yeah. And I wanted to be Dennis Showalter. Yeah. And I guess I'm still, you know, never will be, but I think I'm still kind of pursuing that. And, you know, I, I don't, doubt that that's probably something you've said to yourself Absolutely. At, at one point or another. He walks that balance beautifully. I mean, every book that he writes is scholarly, it's argumentative, it's making a case, but it's a delight to read. There's even bits of humor in it. There's Even if he's dealing with a very serious subject, he's got a touch for explaining who the people are, and I still find myself, when I'm talking about an Eric Ludendorff or a, a Eric von Falkenhayn, I'll, I'll, I'll use Dennis's description of these people right. to explain who these people are to my students. Right. Uh, um, you know what, if you... Um, Dennis writing on Frederick the Great is if I, if I had a Dennis's book on the wars, I guess the campaigns of Frederick the Great. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that's my Desert Island book. Yeah, no. You know, I, so you can take one, right? Absolutely. Yeah. No, and I, I I think I learned a lot from that. You you can write in a in a human way for human readers rather than for a a, a group of intellectuals or I'll so. Shout out to one more person too, and, and since we're talking about how I came to think that this was important, when clearly not maybe everybody thinks it's important as I do. You know, good good smooth writing, fun writing. Um, my, I didn't have a Dr. Fother, as I said. I didn't have a, a, someone, a, a male professor who oversaw my dissertation. I had a Dr. Mutter. Her name was Barbara Yelovich, an eminent professor at Indiana University where I got my Ph.D. Um, and, um, you know, she was a very witty person and a very witty and smooth writer as well. And 
I remember reading her book on St. Uh, uh, St. Petersburg and Moscow. It's Russian and Soviet foreign policy. And just, you know, which let's face it, <laughs> that's not necessarily an exciting book to read. Yeah. Diplomatic history by nature is this country had an agreement with that country to do this if somebody else did that. It's, it'd be very difficult. Um, and, and Barbara's book on uh, St. Petersburg to Moscow to me was just, I, I can pick it up right now. I have large parts of it memorized just because it's been so much a part of my mental uh my mental universe for so long but she was someone else who clearly thought it was important to write to write english in a in a smooth and interesting way and god god bless her yeah yeah no it's really important to have those books that you keep going back to and so what other writers but non maybe non were there non-academic writers that you learned from for me joan didion was a was an absolute model of someone who could paint a picture with a very few words but but really drive a meaning into something it was someone that I I remember reading her stuff and just thinking if I if I could write one tenth as good as she writes I'll be in really good shape. Let me be a little more lowbrow than you, Mike, which is kind of how our relationship goes anyway. <laughs> um, Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Um, when I was yeah. a, a little boy, uh, I would maybe my brother told me to subscribe to Rolling Stone, or maybe I read his. And Hunter Thompson's work was being serialized in Rolling Stone. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail. Uh, so Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is kind of a fantasy about a lost weekend. In a way, it's the it's the spiritual ancestor of the film with Bradley Cooper, where they go to Las Vegas. Do you know the name of the movie? Yeah, Hangover. Uh, hey, yeah, it's kind of the spirit. So. Um, but, but then he wrote Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail about the Nixon-McGovern campaign of 72. Hunter Thompson invented what he called gonzo journalism. That it wasn't really important to say what happened so much as just to, to make a wild description of what happened and what that could have led to in some fantasy. So half the time you're not sure if it's real or if it's, if it's a kind of fantasy. I, I still, I can pick up Hunter Thompson, almost any of his writings today, and just begin laughing out loud. Um, as my wife will testify to you, I'll read it out loud. And she'll, oh, here we go. <laughs> I completely lose control and, and, and break down into laughter. I love Philip K. Dick as a science fiction writer. Dick's work was really advanced. You're never sure what plane of reality you're in. He, I guess our listeners right now would know him best. I, I guess this is true for um, Man in the High Castle. Mm -hmm. Man in the High Castle, the Amazon television program or film, is not, to me, not at all like the book. The, the Axis has won World War II. Uh, and, and the Germans are occupying the eastern United States and the Japanese, the western United States. There's a kind of semi-autonomous Rocky Mountain Republic in between them. And that's the, that's the TV program and also the, the uh, Dick's work, the book. But that's where the similarities kind of depart. Dick's work is a, a look at the small ways that history could be changed radically. And maybe, there's, maybe there's millions of histories existing simultaneously all based on these tiny deviations in what we consider to be the historical time stream so as many of our readers will know dick has there's a there's a resistance movement of sorts growing in the rocky mountain republic and someone there has written a book a subversive book in which the allies have won the war so this is a book about the axis winning the war in which someone has written a book that the allies won the war yeah I, I'm, I'm not I, a science fiction guy so i, I, I don't I, I don't know this stuff i but. could just go for that james yeah. blish was one of the great writers of hard science fiction dick was a writer of of that that book at least was alternate history. James Blish wrote, you know, heavy science fiction about new propulsion systems that would allow man to go to the stars and that sort of thing. So, um, Mike, you know, when I, if I have one of those slots on my schedule, when I don't have to read the memoir of another German Panzer Division commander in the original German, <laughs> I'm usually trying to find some science fiction or fantasy. And and also just a shout out J.R.R. Tolkien, 
not so much The Hobbit, but the, the famous trilogy, of, which begins with Fellowship of the Ring. Those are books that I have continued to read. At Christmas, I'll also read A Christmas Carol. Once, I oh, read yeah. A Christmas yeah. Carol once a year. Great. To, and cry. Well, we're almost at the end, so I want to finish with uh, two questions that I'm going to try to ask everybody that I talk to uh, on, on this podcast. What are you reading right now? I'm in a reading jag right now, I, you know, which means I, I, I'm reading as much as I can. I get in these phases where I just can't pick enough books up. And I've already mentioned Julius Caesar's The Civil War. I just finished it. Um, I know a little bit of Latin, so I have the Loeb Classic. It's got the Latin on the left side and the English on the right. But the book I have in my bag right next to me at the moment, so the book I'm reading right now is Thomas Merton, the great uh, uh, monk, a Trappist monk who was a contemplative that he had sworn a life of silence and prayer. Um Well, he also wrote a million letters in the course of his life. And from October 1961 to October 1962, a time when it looked like the earth was about to be blown off its axis in a thermonuclear war, he wrote a number of letters to influential uh, individuals and friends in society, politics, the church, urging them to stand together as as one in human solidarity and do something Mm -hmm. about this problem that threatened to kill us all. The book is, uh, the the letters have been collected and the volume is called Cold War Letters. I don't know this book. Cold War Letters of Thomas Merton. I'm going to have to read So he's writing Leo Solard, one of the inventors of the the hydrogen bomb. He's he's, uh, writing Claire Booth Luce. He's writing fellow monks in different monasteries. Uh, Ethel Kennedy. Hmm. Fascinating. I'm going to have to read that one. So the last question I'm going to ask everybody that comes through and does this, and I I hope we'll we'll either get a consensus or we'll get a nice long list. What is your favorite bookstore? That's a good one. Well, I still have one in in my memory for the for the most part. You know, it's a tough question nowadays, Michael. There aren't that many. So few standing. But I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and down downtown Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Prospect Avenue, I believe. There was a, a woman named Rachel Cohen. Uh, Mrs. K, we called her, and K's bookstore was a multi-store extravaganza. Hmm. Um, when I think of going into K's bookstore, I could still get a thrill today. I didn't know what I was going to come out with. It might be a book on Paris in the Commune. It might be a book of the history of the Cleveland Indians baseball team. It, it might be something about rock and roll or film. But I always knew I was going to find something. And I, I think about Mrs. K a lot. She, I, I, I believe, never really got to know her. Very difficult to talk to. I think she was hard of hearing. And if you talked to her and it wasn't loud enough, you kind of get yelled at back. It was kind of a, one of those quirky inner city urban places that perhaps don't exist anymore. Was it like the place, uh, Rob taught at Eastern Michigan University. Was it like the place in uh, Detroit on Telegraph Avenue? There was that beautiful old bookstore. I don't know if it's still there. Yes, there was that- a multi-story Yes, that's not Zubel. I can't remember. John, the, it was named for someone. It was in John Smith Books or yeah, whatever. Right now, I'm, I'm losing the title. But yes, it's a, like an old warehouse just filled with books. I remember once going to about 10 bookstores in and around Cleveland, Ohio, in order to find uh, a science fiction novel. Here we go again, Mike, uh, by Walter Miller called A Canticle for Leibowitz. Um, it's post, uh, post-Holocaust. That is post-nuclear Holocaust book in which... Uh, the great superpowers have dis- practically destroyed the human race. There's been a great bloodletting and a destruction of libraries as the, the survivors believe that knowledge has led, led to destruction and technology of destruction. Um, there's a Jewish guy who saved what he could. His name is Leibowitz, and in the future, he's kind of worshipped as a saint. Hmm. Um, they, have, uh, they have documents from the original hand of Leibowitz. It says, 
can of kraut, pound of pastrami bring home for Emma. No one knows what it means. It's a shopping list. The monks are making an illuminated manuscript. Of so at any rate, there's another great science fiction book. But I, I, I used to love haunting bookstores so much. And God bless Barnes & Noble. I consider Barnes & Noble the last man standing. It's probably not. There, I know there are others. Uh, there are others out there. But whenever I travel, for example, in New Orleans right now, on Dauphine Street, there's Dauphine Street Books. And it is a, it's Bob, but we're sitting in a, a standard size office, business office here, Mike and I are. And so imagine, Mike, this room we're sitting in just stacked with books mm. so tight you have to step over them on the floor. It's obviously a labor of love or perhaps a labor of obsession for the man who owns it. So maybe that's my current favorite. All right. Well, this has been great. I've gotten a stack of books now that I need to read, a stack of titles to read. Lowbrow. Lowbrow. <laughs> uh, I want to thank Rob. He just got off a plane from New Orleans. I know you've been traveling all day. I'm really delighted that you could great. come by and do this. And thanks a lot for coming, and welcome back home to Carlisle. Oh, it's good to be back in Carlisle, Mike, and uh, total props to what you're doing here. <laughs> thanks a lot, Rob. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.